Welcome to Interpod, a podcast by Interpride where the world comes together for the LGBTQIA community. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. In honor of Lesbian Visibility Week, we speak to prominent lesbian-identified voices who have made history and are continuing to empower and advance LGBTQIA rights around the world. Here's Tiffany Woods, who is a wife, mother of three, a trans activist, filmmaker, artist, and LGBTQ caucus co-chair for the Northern California Democratic Party. Hi, my name is Tiffany Woods. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am the LGBTQ caucus co-chair for Northern California for the California Democratic Party. I came out publicly, like first time, like public at a public event that basically said I'm trans. And it was in San Francisco on June 20th in 1989. And at that time, the organizations in San Francisco were, trans organizations were literally underground. Like there was one and what we used to know as Transgender San Francisco, which I don't believe is not in use anymore. Um, It was called ETVC or Educational Transvestite Channel, which also shows you the language that we were using back in 1989. And you literally had to write to them, find a P.O. box, write to them. And they held these little third, the, the last Thursday of the month, they had a what they called a social. And it was at the old Shea Malay restaurant, which was on Second Street. It was a, a, a gay, what we'd call a gay steakhouse. And they had this back room. And that's where all these basically were middle-aged white heterosexual cross-dressers would gather, dress once a year, I mean, a, a month and have a social. Um, and it was a club and they had a president and everything. And this had started years earlier, I think around like 84 um, in someone's house. And then they kind of moved it publicly and they had produced the cotillion, um, which was their biggest trans event at that time in San Francisco. They had a prom. I wanted to go. We got a prom dress and I went. And Bridget and I, my, we went, um, we weren't married. We were living together. We had an apartment off of, uh, down by Ceremony Mall in Daly City. And that was literally my first, what I call my coming out to the world, to the public and in a space with nobody that I knew. That wasn't just me and her and maybe a little Chinese restaurant on a Monday night in Daly City that nobody was at so that nobody would, you know, could say anything. So that was it. And, I, and so I kind of look at that as my first, like, okay, world, here I am. And, you know, it might've been underground or what I say underground, but not, you know, like at a big event, but like, like nowadays folks come out on, oh, these are my new pronouns on social media that we we know that that wasn't the case back then. And then I ended up being in the gay pride, what we call the gay and lesbian pride in 1990. I actually, we had a contingent and I had won the pageant in June and January of that year, the Miss uh, ETVC pageant I had won. And so we had this little car we had um, got a, what was it? It's like a Corvette. And we had these banners, literally this ragtag group with a banner in front going down Market Street that said transvestites and transsexuals. And it was in the gay and lesbian day parade, which I also got outed by coworkers and got fired. That was kind of the big pride coming out thing. Go all the way back to the beginning of where the CNN article starts. And it's you... Bridget meeting at a Greyhound bus stop. We were not looking for anything. When we met at the Greyhound bus station here in Sacramento, like literally we were catching the bus back to Sacramento at that time, the trans 
day turnival station on 6th Street um, since the mission is no longer there. My wife had said, I want a divorce. And my partner, friend I was staying with said, go deal with this. And so like, I'm literally at this bus station. Like that was it. I'm literally, my head was in this hole. How am I going to go deal with this? What am I going to do? It was like just dealing with this issue that I knew I was running away from. And that's why I was up in Sacramento. I was kind of oblivious to even like noticing her. Clearly I wasn't dressed to impress. <laughs> um, and you know, she noticed me and you know, when we started talking as the state of the story, the gentleman, we just kept kind of talking and she's like, oh, you need these tags. And I'm like, okay. And then um, we, you know, we just dark, struck up a conversation and then the gentleman said, oh, you should, you know, why don't you two stand next together? Because I, clearly we were <laughs> interrupting him. There just seemed to be that, and I, I constantly lean to it, that it's when you're, you're in a position where you're with traveling with, or going someplace with a you're with somebody you've never met before there's no expectations there's no hey you're cute um you want to you know there's none of that it's just two people met and they had a connection struck up a conversation not looking for it, it literally anything and so i think we just had that open vulnerabus that just oh okay and we sat together and um, there were lots of delays. Normally, you know, that's like a two, two and a half hour, maybe three hour with the different stops all the way to San Francisco. And back then traffic wasn't as bad from San Francisco to uh, Sacramento, San Francisco, but it just, there was other delays. And I think we were, we were delayed by like an hour or two out of Sacramento. And so we just had a lot of time to spend together talking. And I don't know, I, I, it's hard to explain it. There was just this like we've known each other, like in a past life, or I don't like to get dramatic that way, but we just, like there was a familiarity that you don't really have when you meet somebody. And I think we're both aware of it without consciously speaking out loud of it or talking about it. And so we just kind of rolled with it. And clearly I had expected we would get to the, to, to, to the bus station in downtown Sacramento, uh, San Francisco at Mission, and I was going to contact my best friend from high school who was working down in, um, downtown and he was going to take me, he was staying with my cousin out in South San Francisco at his house and he was going to give me a ride and I was going to say goodbye and have a nice, you know, nice traveling with you kind of a moment. And that was, but by the time we got there late, it was dark. Um, she needed to get up to Pacifica where she was staying with her aunt. Um, so she was going to transfer to BART. Um, and it was like, I don't know, I think it was like eight o'clock or something. And I'm like, well, then I couldn't get a hold of my friend. And so got a hold of another, his brother who had an apartment over on Army Street. And so he picked us up and I says, I, I guess I just naturally said, hey, why don't we get something to eat? Why don't you let me, why take the bar? Obviously, I'm not <laughs> a serial killer or something. I think I said something like that. And you know, and I'll, you know, let's go get something to eat. We're both are hungry and I'll drop you off um, at Pacifica. And so that was kind of the plan. And that's kind of what we did. And that, I think that extension, the dinner and then dropping her off, we ended up stopping at the Pepper Mill in Daly City, which was a big spot, talking. And that conversation around drinks and the fireplace was much more different, much more, I guess, intimate. I don't know if that's the right word, but I miss when I was sitting there and getting really getting to know each other other than the general bus conversation with strangers around where you are there. 
we weren't guarded, but we weren't really divulging things about our personal life, right? But I think around that, that there was just a different, like, hey, I could get to know her. Like, this is this has been really cool. Like, this was so unexpected. And I think I really needed this for the place that I'm at in my life. And so when I did drop her off at like two in the morning and then spent the whole day with her, it was like, I think there was something in the back of my head that like, okay, if this doesn't work with me going back to work out with my wife, I'm going to call her. And I had said, well, let me, I'll give you a call later on this week. And she's like, okay. And that was like it. So I just think it was just this, we'd gotten so familiar with each other so quick where most, you know, when you're meeting somebody and dating, that, that could be a long time or a while, you know, it just, we just, like I said, I felt like there was some connection that we were really familiar with each other, like whether it was a past life or something. I think now in our spirituality, our own personal, we realized that we might have, you know, we definitely, you know, we had probably connected in, in our past lives. And so we we just kind of go with that theory now. I This is very familiar to me because it's exactly how I feel about my wife and I, and it didn't doesn't even cross our minds, actually, that we're two women at times, and the gender part really gets thrown out the window for us, mm-hmm. because we feel so spiritually connected. So tell us about, you know, the moment that you, and you mentioned it earlier, it was very quick, and, and early in the relationship that you decided to be open and honest about dealing with gender identity issues Uh, there was no like okay i'm gonna tell her you know like this planning out speech rehearsal thing like i I, like i'd been doing for years with my kids like it was nothing like that i i was in a space honestly because things had not worked out with my wife um and we had been together for three years before we got married so we'd been together for like six seven years um and it was so hot and cold with the like we didn't have the language except for transsexual and, you know, I dress up and she'd be okay with it one time and the next time not. And just, I just had got to the point where like, and things had left really bad when I separated, like I am never, I, I literally made that vow. I am never going to tell somebody again. I had gotten married because that's the game we played back then to, I know I alluded in the story that, you know, we gravitated, that was going to be a sheriff's deputy and a cop because that was a hyper-masculinity um, professions. Well, and I also had hoped that I would get shot and killed in the line of duty. And then I would never have this kind of trans curse with me. That's kind of what our thought process was back then. We never, we weren't, obviously society didn't teach us. This was a gift. And if you didn't, I didn't have access to, you know, history to know all about, you know, two-spirit and shaman and uh, other ancient cultures where we were revered, I, I had none of that information. I do now. So back then, if you were trans, you know, kind of my generation, I'm 59 this year. I'll be 59 in September. It's like, we just wanted it to go away. I just wanted this gone. And so I got married, went to church, you know, I was going to do this cop, be a cop. I guess I'll help people. And it would be gone. And that didn't happen, you know, married man and plan kids and all that. But what we know now is that pressure cooker case continues because you're not dealing with that in a healthy way. So that was kind of had been going on. And so I'm sitting there now and and I had this moment that two and three o'clock in the morning going and has this conversation. I'm like, okay, did it your way. I'm done. (laughs) I'm going to start doing it my way. I don't even know what that means, but clearly 
this is where I'm at right now. And all of that that I was trying before did not work. So we're going to try it my way now. And that's when I had kind of stopped doing church and all of that. And I'm like, okay, maybe this is the start of doing things my way, right? Or a different way. And so that's kind of where my not being guarded and being able to open and share happened, I would say, because I was in that space, not to be just like, I'm going to absolutely protect the secret till my, you know, grave kind of thing. So then the moment that we were, that this happened is like, you know, I go back, we, as it says, you know, I'm, I'm laying on, we went to her sister's play. I met her friends for drinks and it's like two o'clock in the morning. We're back at her parents' house and we're like literally in front of the fireplace. And I'm, I, I had worked all day pouring construction in the Oakland Hills. I'm exhausted. I just want to sleep. I've had champagne and a fireplace. And you're just like, it just came out like, oh, like what's your color? Favorite color? Oh, purple. <laughs> like, so I wasn't thinking. So I wasn't on guard. I don't know. I think I have gender issues. And da, da, da. Now in the morning when I woke up, like literally like a whole, you know, and you're not kind of in that kind of champagne buzz. I was like, what the hell did I say? Oh my God. So look, I was lying, you know, and I tried to take it all back and walk it all back and all that. And that's when she's like, she like re- remembered everything I said and said, no, it's okay. Let's figure this out together. And that's not what I expected and not what society conditions us. From that moment, that next morning, I was like, wow, I, I honestly didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know how to process that, but I'm like, okay, well, here I am. I'm still at her house in Sacramento. I still don't have a way home. We're going to catch the bus or get a ride home. So at that point, it was a little too late to pull all that back. And then that kind of just, I realized that there is somebody out there for me that I can be honest and open. I don't know where this is going to go, but this is definitely better than what I was, what I had. And so that was kind of where I was going and what I was thinking. Talk to us about the transition process. Share with us what that was like for you, having somebody through the process and supportive. You know, throughout the whole process, she always had the vision and then just knew. This is like literally in 89, I can tell you we had a conversation in 89. And she would like, like, I'm going to have two kids. We're going to have two kids. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and we're raising them as two moms. And I'm like, okay, you could see that. Like, she's like, yeah, it's going to happen. Get on board with it. Like she just has had this innate vision to just kind of plan. She's the planner, the organizer, and she had already planned and organized out. And I'm like, she's like, and if you don't want two kids, um, you know, let me know the address and I'll send you and your new wife a toaster. If I didn't want kids, that was a deal breaker. We, we did the whole planning and the transition process together. My, my gender generation, I think that we get so myopic in our gender identities and our, and our quest for our transition. Sometimes we get very myopic and it's just all about, I need to get on hormones. I need to do this. And what's the next stage? And I get my ID, right? And we're just doing this. And we're not realizing that, that our transition affects everybody else around them because they're, they're transitioning too. She's transitioning with me. It's a different transition. It's not a physical, it's a relationship. It's a relation. How do you relate to your new your partner and their new gender. That was a transitional process. And I had to constantly pull back and say, wait a minute, that's too fast. Like, no, no, you know, and I think that's where a lot of relationships, I will tell you back during the nineties, I mean, 
for those who don't know the history in the night, at least in the you know late eighties, nineties, for sure. When the, you know, the advent of the Jerry Springer shows and all that, like they trans couples were nine out of 10 ended in separation or divorce, like just completely. I mean, it was just, even the therapist would tell you to leave your partner if you're transitioning, especially if you're going into kind of confirmation surgery or what we'd said back then, sex reassignment surgery. Like they counseled you to get a divorce. In many states, you had to get a divorce, right? We turned down the Phil Donahue show. And in that 2093, Phil Donahue was Ali Jessai, Raphael, Oprah. They were like the top. And the producers on the phone said, well, we know what's wrong with you, but what's wrong with her because she's staying with you. And we said, well, we're not going on your show to have you judge our love and our relationship because we, it, it isn't about the parts and the pieces that make each other, you know, that we have on our bodies. It's about our soul and we're in love with the soul of the person and the rest is just, it doesn't really matter. And that's how we always were. I think we, we were always soulmates when we first met and that never changed in a transition. So we had to work through it as a, as a couple and as a partner navigating and going from this, what appeared as a heterosexual straight couple into a lesbian couple. And that really wasn't a problem. I think it was more of an issue with our families, you know, understanding that process but it wasn't with us. It just worked with us. And we just had to make it work. A lot of it was me holding back. She never did. She always knew exactly what she wanted to kids. And then, you know, having the kids, that was a whole nother journey. It's a whole nother layer of the story. We didn't talk, we didn't even get into the CNN that, you know, all three of our kids are um, IVF babies. You know, they're about $50,000 of IVF and sperm donor and everything. That was a whole nother journey. I could sit here and listen to you all day long, but for the purpose of this podcast and tying it back to Lesbian Visibility Week, so you mentioned, you know, the process that it took for your your family to understand. Talk to us and tell us about your views, your perspective, and also identifying as lesbian. I don't think we ever, we weren't really trying, we were trying, trying not to use labels. Um, we weren't really using labels as vi- lesbians. I think we just kind of morphed into that labeling. We were, as I was transitioning, I always saw myself as a woman. So we were two women together. There was definitely a lot of education on the families. Her sister came out as a lesbian way before we did. Her sister came out, her younger sister. Again, when we, that bus story, we went to her sister's play. She was a sophomore. She ended up living with us and and we were living together in Union City. Um, We had a house. Um, it was kind of like the, the friend's house. We had drag queens and I was the trans and drag queens. And uh, since her sister came out as a lesbian and, um, and that was all in 95, 96. So her sister, and so her family dealt with that. And that was a big shock. And so we were just kind of like, well, all right, you go and deal with that. And we'll sit back and watch how they all respond. Well, we were really, really silent about the trans part with me. And we didn't reconcile it like we, said in the CNN story until like around 2000, I was already estranged from my, my side of the family. My mom had kind of figured some things out around 90. It wasn't good. Um, from 94 to 2000, I left my family. I had no communication and they're all of these, they're all in, you know, Contra Costa County and I'm in Alameda County in Union City. My father was in Oakland and um, I think he found out and never really dealt with it or said anything negative, but he never changed the way he interacted love. So we just, we're using labels. 
I used to do the stand-up comedy when I was doing stand-up in the 90s because uh, I've done stand-up when I was doing stand-up at Josie's when they had the open mics there. And so I used to do this routine on stage where I'd talk about labels and we were so into the labeling thing at that point in the mid-90s, right? And the leather queens and the drag queens and the empresses and the emperors and dykes and dykes on bikes. And so I would have this thing where I'd get up on the stage and I'd say, all right, when you hear your label, give us a shout, like, where are the dykes in the house? And the dykes would scream and then... You know, I do this to like every label we had, which clearly wasn't as many as we have now. And everybody was like the pride that like they'd be like, and I'd say, any crossdressers, you'd get two people in the back. They'd go, hey, and I'm like, all right, let's say there they are in the back right there. Everybody give it up to them. And, and it would get the crowd going. It wouldn't play now. They'd come for me like in two seconds on stage. But back then you could do that. And the whole point, I'd get to the end and said, and my name is just Tiffany because I don't have any labels. And the whole point was we're too busy labeling ESAPs. And yeah, we're proud in these labels, but at the end of the day, we're just who we are. We don't need the labels. And that was kind of this routine that really worked on stage and it got the crowd up. And so I just was trying not, I was doing stand-up comedy. I was struggling and acting and trying to figure out how to transition acting into all Tiffany and not just um, LGBTQ community stage work and you know doing shows. And so I wanted to stay away from the trans label. Again, even the transgender was just coming out as a political organizing tool in 95, 96. And I just, um, San Francisco, Cecilia Chung and several were leading the, you know, the hearings and supervisors, 95 with the anti-discrimination and the human rights, uh, human relations commission was all happening right there. I'm over in Alameda County, you know, doing shows and burying friends and HIV AIDS and trying to transition. And I just wanted to just kind of figure it out. And so we weren't really going, we're a lesbian couple navigating this kind of, but in the community in Alameda County, we were seen as a lesbian couple. And that was I kind of where we really were like, okay, we're a lesbian couple and I'm trans. And I would always just say, to, I was actually just using trans and not transsexual. I wasn't using transgender until the mid 2000s. And so for me, it was uh, just trying to educate people for, without having to use a word a label, a, t- a name for it, just this is what gender identity is. So there was a lot of educating. We made a lot of mistakes, not being open and honest with our families. I chose to just be fear, not interact with them all. And I realized when I came back to my family, you know, we knew we we're going to have kids and all that. I got, I got a lot of pushback from my aunts and stuff. They were like really angry. They knew we'd have conversations on the phone but I wasn't really telling them and being honest with them. They knew I was doing a drag show or a female person. It shows what we were using language back then. And so they really hurt that I never gave them a chance to accept it, have that sit down converse, kitchen table conversation. And okay, this is who I am. And I've identified since I was a kid. Da, da, da. I think my mom was in denial, but my aunts were like, you know, why didn't you trust us? And there was, you know, we are part, Catholic, Hispanic on that, my mom's side, my grandfather immigrated from Mexico. So there was that, um, although not super traditional, but the Catholic church and all of that. And I was just running away from all of that. I just was running, running away. And so, yeah, I just, I didn't. So we saw ourselves as a lesbian couple, but we weren't really using that language. We were just, this is who we are. And people assumed they were a lesbian couple and that was fine with us. And I think that's how now they definitely see us as a lesbian couple as two moms with you know three kids. So I think all those experiences in the 90s with the labels and trying to identify who we are, you know, we're definitely not heterosexual. And as I transitioned, that was gone. 
Um, so I think most people just see us and, and I, I have passing ability and privilege as a white Latina trans woman, um, white passing. And I honestly am not trying to have drama at the Safeway store with my kids in tow and be the trans educator or, you know, you know, I'm there as a mom with my kids just trying to get my groceries like everybody else and get in home. In your opinion, what is the biggest advantage, the biggest positive impact for cisgender and transgender lesbians to be in solidarity with each other? That's a really good question. And I'm, I'm, I, I know so many are trying to answer that question with this whole reemergence of the turfs, these turf wars we fought in the seventies and eighties, even when I was a kid and the whole Janice Raymond. Um, it's so disheartening to see us divided when we have, here's the thing I've always been like, and I with my young trans staff and my team when I was working in direct service at the clinic, like when they were fighting among each other and I'm like, you know, we have enough enemies outside of our community. Why are we fighting with each other? Some folks would say, well, I'm not a true lesbian because I'm trans and I'm not, you know, assigned female at birth, right? All that does is seek to give them energy and support to divide and conquer us. And I think we all have so much more in common and it's cliched, but we really do. I want to go back to what my wife has always said. Love is it, 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 not way before we even came up with love is love in 2015 with the Supreme Court ruling at Obergefell. You're in love with who you, you are, with, with your, your, your partner, whatever for language you're using, your partner, your soulmate, whatever. And the pieces and the parts are just, they're there and you figure it out, but you're in love with the soul of the person, right? And you know who you are internally. I've always known inside my soul that I was female. Um, she's always known inside her female. And was she, a, she wasn't attracted to, to, to women before she met me, you know, it was something that she transitioned into, but it's where, who we are and it is our journey. And we know that we've been together in past life. And it's, this is where we're at together in, in this physical journey. And we really need to focus on all what we have in common to work together, to support each other and, and affirm our communities because there's so much out there that wants that not to happen. We need to stop focusing on the genitals and, and what makes, uh, you know, what's a woman and what is female and what is trans. Um, individually, work it out, figure it out, right? Get the health and support and do it in a healthy way. But for relationships, then there's just so much going on in the world and so much in our country, and they just, you know, they just say the Ukraine war right there alone, and all the anti-trans laws and anti-LGBT legislation and the anti-abortion and, um, you know, rolling back all of the rights that we should be focusing on instead of energy among our community about who's not really a lesbian or who's not really a woman, right? Life is short. We have to show the world our stories and affirm and inspire because there's kids out there getting those same messages right now around the world. And, and they need our stories to show them that they will, that they will survive, they will. It, it's not, it's, it gets better moment. It's we are living proof and we need to be able to reach them and they need to be able to see our stories, whether we're trying to inspire or not by just living our stories and being authentic and supporting our community. So I don't know. There's a lot of messages, but the messages is that um, lesbian visibility and community to me means about coming together, supporting, affirming each other and, you know, celebrating that. 
we each have our individual story, but our stories are so much stronger when they're together, right? And our community stories are so much stronger when they're um, together and shared and valued. And I think sometimes that we don't value our stories and our communities that much because we're too busy trying to get attention or visibility or my story is more important than their per story. And we need to stop all that and start moving forward to, you know, to, to full, truly community. And I think it's there. I just think that we just really have to work at it. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you for all that you do and continue to do for our communities. Happy Lesbian Visibility Week. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Interpod, a podcast by Interpride, where the world comes together for the LGBTQIA community, head to interpride.org.